Welcome, everybody, to The Collector's Show. I'm Harold Nickel here on Web Talk Radio. In the interview segment this week, we're going to be learning about Mount Washington glass and all things Mount Washington, why it gets its name, how you can learn more about it, and then we'll learn about a convention for seven different types of glass collectors that's going to be in Kansas City later this summer. But first, as always, the news segment, news from the world of collecting This is a story about a man who collects lanterns. His name is Greg Deal. He's a lantern collector, and his garage is covered with lanterns. And we're talking about the type of lanterns that you light with a match, and it burns on uh, kind of a liquid fuel. I think we're most familiar with Coleman lanterns, but it turns out that there are far more types of lanterns. And Greg owns 160 different types of lanterns. He started restoring them and collecting them back in 1965, but his collection spans from lanterns that were made in 1914 to editions that were made as late as 1997. And we learn also that there is a Coleman Lantern Collectors Club that meets regularly. You can find out more about that online, or you can read about Greg Deal and his lantern collection from the Farm and Dairy Auction Guide. It's a guide to the rural marketplace and uh, all things about collecting lanterns. People collect all kinds of stuff, and one of the fun things about this program is that we learn about different types of hobbies and collectibles. There are links to historic and technological advancements. Here's one, though, that's a little bit more fun. The Batmobile is up for auction Wayne Hymans is going to Fort Lauderdale, Florida next week to buy a car, but he's already got 36. He keeps them all stored in a huge garage he built near his house in upstate New York. He considers them like his babies, and it turns out from this story that there are 10 million American car collectors. An auction in Fort Lauderdale is just one of the larger ones, and they're going to be auctioning off, among other things, a 1957 Imperial Crown convertible that was once owned by Howard Hughes, and the original Batmobile. The original Batmobile from the 1960s television program, which was unique for its time and its design. It was rocket-fired, and if you grew up in the 60s, you remember about the Batmobile. So if you go to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to this uh, auction... That'll be later this year. You can bid on the Batmobile, Howard Hughes' ride, and all different types of automobiles. And you can join the 10 million different people who collect cars for fun. Okay, like I said, we're going to go to the interview segment now. We're going to be talking about Mount Washington glass. And then at the end of the program, we'll have the unusual or weird collectible of the week. Thank you for joining us again here on Web Talk Radio. My name is Harold Nickel. Thanks for listening. Well, in this interview segment of The Collector's Show, we're going to be joined by Mr. Jay Rogers. Jay is an expert in glass collecting, but a very particular type of glass. And Jay, welcome to The Collector's Show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. 
Well, we have talked with all different types of collectors before, and we've even talked with other glass collectors before, but we have uh -huh. never spoken with anyone who collected Mount Washington glass. Give us a quick overview of, of what is Mount Washington glass. Okay. Um, well, the Mount Washington glass works actually was uh, developed in um, New Bedford, Massachusetts, um, Frederick Shirley, who had worked with other uh, European uh, English glass manufacturers like Stevens and Williams, Thomas Webb, uh, moved to the United States and developed um, a glass company. They made a large number of types of glass, uh, starting in about 1874 as the company was established. Um, they did everything, including cut glass, um, chandeliers, uh, various types of oil and kerosene lamps. Uh, gradually, the market changed, and of course, that changed. They changed with it, uh -huh. and developed a type of uh, American art glass that was formed on very classic shapes. Um, for a lot of people, actually, it looks a lot like uh, porcelain or china because it's opaque generally. Um, he was responsible for developing a type of glass called Burmese glass uh -huh. that um, was a real hit in the glass industry. And Queen Victoria fell in love with it, um, and he actually made a very special design for her and actually sold the formula to Thomas Webb and Sons of England so that they could produce it for her, which they called Queen's Burmese. Okay, and I need... To just ask you, just back off your phone just a touch. We're getting a little, okay. uh, a little okay. staticky. So it right. sounds to me like there's a lot to know about this kind of glass, and you know, and maybe it sounds dumb, but I had wondered if um, the glass was named after a geographic location. Well, it is somewhat associated with Mount Washington in New Hampshire, uh -huh. um, but uh, actually, why they named it the Mount Washington Glass Works, I am not 100% sure. Okay. Uh, I will reference your listeners to a book that was done uh, by Mr. Ken Wilson right. called Mount Washington and Pearpoint Glass, and I believe that that will be a pretty good comprehensive historical background on the development of the Mount Washington Glass Works. So, um, and is this a book that they could get on Amazon, or do you have a website we could go to? I believe you can get it on Amazon. Uh, it was available at one time on Amazon. It may not be any longer. You might be able to go to the Mount Washington Pearpoint Glass Collectors Society website oh, wow. and track that book down from there. So I want to go back because thinking about glass today... Um, we don't. We think about glass as uh, the panes on our homes, but exactly maybe just older homes because uh, newer homes are using plexiglass. Right. We don't right. necessarily drink out of glassware anymore. It's all made out of plastic. Right. <laughs> glass had a lot of more use in in those days, and so it wasn't just for art's sake, that they had glass. Isn't that right? Oh, that is absolutely correct. It was actually quite a employment industry. Um, very crafted, very um, 
strong artisans in various areas of the country, and especially along the Ohio River Valley areas because of the sand that was used in producing the glass, mm-hmm. um, was available, and also the shipping lanes to get it distributed around the United States. Um, it, it tended to be that glass companies developed in areas where they could easily move their products. So like uh, Mount Washington's uh, glass works in New Bedford was right on the shores of Massachusetts so that they could move the glass fairly easily. Um, and yes, glass actually w- has not held up as well in terms of what we use on a day-to-day basis. I mean, obviously, there are collectors of cut glass and people who will buy Waterford, you know, for fine dining and that sort of thing. But that sort of trend even has moved away from American society as we've become a little bit more of a disposable society. Sure. So for those of us who do collect glass, I drink essentially out of only glass, glasses, I mean, true glass, um, and we like to collect a variety of types of glass just at the center of the collection. Uh, and my focus in terms of uh, a historical perspective and just loving the art of the glass is Mount Washington and Pear Point glass. And what you were saying earlier about how it's made and, and the color, if I were, and I am, just a novice, uh, someone that, that uh, decided I was going to start collecting Mount Washington glass, mm-hmm. what distinguishes it from other types? Is it more durable? Is it not necessarily more durable, but in a broad variety of colors? I mean, there were, you know, they responded to the market in terms of color and designed uh, designs. They wanted to always keep people interested. So there were uh, constant scientists uh, working to create new formulas. They would add various um, things that come from the earth. Um, There are minerals and salts that they could add to glass batches that would affect the color. And once they were able to really hone those down to uh, an exact color, they would produce a line. Um, Like, for instance, as I had mentioned before, the Burmese glass. Uh Um, They also developed a line of peach blow. Uh, Most of their glass started out in their early opaque forms were what they called lusterless white, which was essentially just a white glass that had a very china or porcelain-like look to it, but it was dipped in a... um, an acid bath that would take the shininess away, matte the finish, and then they would do hand-painted decorations on it, largely florals. As the company got more and more wealthy, those uh, art designs turned from flowers to um, animals to birds, um, even scenes, um, people. Uh, they, they really covered a broad variety. It wasn't necessarily more durable, uh, but they used very high-quality paints. Um, they used an actual 18-karat gold or sometimes a 24-karat gold to do gilding on these pieces that has lasted over the years, and it's color that you really – it's almost impossible to recreate. Um, anybody who does restoration work will tell you that it's the most difficult thing to do is to try and replicate the gold that Mount Washington used on their glass because once it was fired, it had a, a luster that was just almost impossible to copy. So there's a great deal of science behind glass making because uh, it sounds to me like you, if you had a background in chemistry, you'd be perfect 
for blast-blowing. And they employed a good number of chemists who worked with uh, these natural salts and minerals to see what the effects were on batches of glass. And they would sometimes discover things quite by accident. Um, you know, back in the Victorian times when they were at the height of their production, um, when I mentioned peach blow, people will recognize that name. And there are many, many companies that did peach blow, and they all attempted to come with just ever so slightly different tonalities so that they could ascribe it to their particular name. Uh, Mount Washington's peach blow didn't look like anybody else's. It was actually sort of a... Um, uh, rosy pink color that shaded to like a blue-white or a blue-gray color, uh, whereas a lot of different companies uh, did what you would think of a more traditional peach blow color. You'd think of a peach where it's um, sort of a reddish to a golden yellow. Uh-huh. That was a more natural color tone for a lot of other companies, but Mount Washington wanted to stand out, wanted to do something different, and sadly, that particular color was very unpopular at the time it was produced. Uh. did not sell well. It was not a good seller. However, these days, it is highly sought after and brings astronomical prices at auctions um, because it, there was not a lot of it made. Um, you know, once it sort of failed in the market, uh, the production stopped, and so there was some limited availability of that. But now when you find pieces of it, you know, it really will bring some pretty substantial prices in the marketplace. If you're just joining us, it's The Collector Show with Harold Nickel, and we're talking this week with Jay Rogers, and Jay is educating us on the topic of Mount Washington glass. Now, Jay, you said that, um, and it sounds to me like a lot of the difference in colors is geographic because of what was or wasn't in the in the soil nearby or the sand rather right, nearby right. the that, the factory. That's exactly the way it started. So if um, I if I took a piece of uh, glass that was made in New Hampshire, this this peach that you described, and mm-hmm. set it beside another peach that was manufactured elsewhere, would you be able to tell the difference? Yes, you would actually. Uh, in, in the the in the nature of peach blow glass, there it was made by so many different companies. Um, say, for instance, within the United States, the Hobbs Brockner Glass Company up in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia area, they actually created a peach blow that was more of the traditional sort of deep mahogany reds to a pale yellow. They plated it or cased it with a white lining. In other words, it was a glass you could actually see through. It was actually clear until they put this casing or plating, which is a thin layer of a white glass on the inside. So when it was blown, it actually had a double blowing process where you had a casing or a plating so that it became completely um, opaque. You could not see through it at all. Um, Mount Washington's is actually a homogenous color, meaning that it is through the glass all the way. There is no lining. It is simply an opaque glass that shades from this rosy pink to a pale blue-white color at the bottom. Um, so those, you could definitely tell the difference. Um, and the New England Glass Works also did peach blow. Mm-hmm. Um, there were all these different companies, and they just looked for ways to sort of set themselves apart in the marketplace. Um, so that people could have an easily identifiable um, item that they could look at and say, aha, that one was made by New England. No, this one is Mount Washington. No, that one was made by Hobbs Brockner. 
Um, and so there, there were all of these varieties, and you could definitely tell them apart. And it was largely regional up to a point, because at one point it obviously became fairly easy to move these minerals and things around the country so they could be bought and toyed with. Um, and the same thing with amberina glass, where they actually added gold to the batch of the amber glass, and when it was taken back to the glory hole and refired, in other words, heated to really high temperatures, at the edges it would turn this rich red color and fade into the yellow. So there were all these scientific methods, all these you know, chemists who worked to see just what reaction heat uh, and cold had on these glass formulas. So, and and I hate to be such a nudge, but I am going to please back away from the phone just a bit. Okay, um, I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. Um, the equipment's just real sensitive, and you know that's just uh, one of the hazards of of um, of radio. But I want to talk about the link to commerce because uh, you mentioned that the early factories were near waterways, Absolutely. For, so that they could take the finished glass to customers, and then you talked about um, the fact that this one particular piece wasn't popular right. in the right. old days. Yes. So for those of us who want to um, make a killing in five or ten years from now, what's an <laughs> unpopular piece today that we uh, that we could go snag and um, and cash in on uh, in a few years from now? I will say that that is beginning, getting to be harder and harder to do, uh, largely due to the advent of so much research material out there about glass in, okay. in the form of books. There are so many people who have written about so many of these glass formulas that there are not many of those hidden secrets anymore. Now, what you may discover in terms of hitting the jackpot with an item that you pick up somewhere um, is there are often pieces, and, and this happens a lot with Mount Washington, there are pieces that are not signed. Mount Washington didn't really sign an awful lot of its work. Okay. They used a paper label, and as you might imagine, from, let's say, 1878 to 2011, paper labels didn't really survive if people were washing their product if they use the glass at all. Mm -hmm. um, naturally, it would be exposed to water and those little paper labels actually just peel off. Yeah, that was um, one of the other things I was curious about because um, in addition to the color differences, this, a lot of collectibles that are fired and, and uh, made light glass or are other kinds of glass have a stamp yes. in them, but yes. uh, it doesn't sound like these did. They did not generally do that on many things until they developed lines later on in their history, closer to, let's say, 1892, 1891, 1894. Um, Mount Washington had developed a line they called Crown Milano, and that was a second naming. The original line was called Albertine. That name did not capture anybody's imagination. So they didn't really change the product, they just changed the name and changed it to Crown Milano, huh. which seemed to have a little bit more uh, cachet with people. Somehow that one rang somebody's bell. Well, it's Italian, so, right? I'm sorry? It's Italian sounding as far. Uh, it is. It is. It, it, it called up a little bit of um, the European flair. Right. And so uh, Crown Milano became very popular, but it was one of the few things that was actually stamped. Now, they did have a Crown Milano paper label as well, but later pieces they used a, um, 
a mark that was a C with an M over it, and then there was a crown above the C and the M. And sometimes it was numbered, which the numbers either related to the design number or the shape number. So uh, their line that followed that Royal Flemish, which was a clear glass, essentially clear with color staining, and it had raised gold lines that were a little bit like uh, leaded glass windows. It was to sort of give you that look. Uh-huh. Royal Flemish also had a, a signature of a, uh, an R laid over an F um, in a diamond. Um, so they did actually stamp some things later on, and those pieces, of course, are highly collectible. People like having the marks, and I do think that the more novice collector is always going to move towards the pieces that have a stamp because that way they can really verify what it is. Have there been any instances lately, and I hope we don't give anybody any ideas, about counterfeit stamping of this glass? Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Unfortunately, the sad news is is that there have been attempts at it. However, they don't really work very well. Mount Washington did their Crown Milano mark in a very unusual deep blue-purple stamp color. Uh, it was an ink color. And it's very difficult to get that color to look natural if it is faked. Um, it's either too strong or the size of the mark is, is incorrect for the size of the piece. Um, you know, I mean, people are always going to try and sort of um, take advantage, I guess, in the marketplace of, of marking, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't fool many of the serious collectors, and novice collectors just need to, as I always say, uh, education is your best guard against being having your money taken. So, so you know, you read carefully, you study your books, um, and there are some good books. If you go to the Mount Washington Pearpoint Glass Society's uh, website, you will find reference material there, and there are some books that have been written over the years, and they're very, very informative, and I, I believe most of the collectors would find them highly, highly interesting. Do you ever consult with people about uh, pieces to make sure that they're not getting uh, cheated? Um, I have had people ask me um, about pieces at shows. They'll bring something in and ask me if the mark looks right. And uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's very prevalent in more Art Nouveau type glass because of the amount of prices, how high the prices are on things like Tiffany and Quizal in that period of Art Nouveau as opposed to Victorian. Victorian really, we haven't seen as much of it. It's not nearly as prevalent in Victorian glass um, as it is in the Art Nouveau glass. Now, we're going to run short of time, so I want to make sure that we talk about ways that people can actually go and see not just different pieces of Mount Washington glass, but mm-hmm. all kinds of glass. You're involved in a glass convention. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I am indeed. Well, um, I'll give you just a quick uh, background on this. I was uh, the president of the Antique and Art Glass Salt and Sugar Shaker Collectors Club. Cool. And we were all looking at uh, how we were losing membership over the years, largely due to the fact that a lot of the age of the members, we were getting older, people moving into smaller communities. They just didn't collect as much. They tend to lose interest after a while. And the younger people, you know, as we note, are very electronically motivated these days, very much into 
the disposable lifestyle, and they just don't recognize the the need or the then they don't have the desire to collect this wonderful glass. So I decided that one way that we needed to try and get focus back on collecting was to pull in groups that had similarities and have us all learn from each other just how much we really share. Um, This particular convention is going to be seven different glass clubs, and um, the easiest way for me to do this for you, and especially in interest of time, is to give you the website. And people can go to the website, and there you will see links to all of the club websites. Um, So the the website address is www.2011mega-glassconvention.info. Okay. So, and if you go to that website, um, there are several pages there. There are member link pages. Um, there is a list of some of the people that are going to be doing. Uh, they're going to be my speakers. They're going to do speaking for me. Right. Um, and it was just an idea I had, and it's been struggling along for oh three or four years trying to pull it together. But we finally have it on the mat, and so we're going to meet in the center of the country in uh, Kansas City. Uh, in July of this year, and I am looking forward to it being a spectacular event of um, seven glass groups getting together to see just how much alike we are and how little we are different. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like fun, and um, I know we've talked about other types of glass on the program before. And the thing that's always interesting is um, the depth of knowledge people like yourself and other serious collectors have about these types of collections and that uh, if you want to go and be introduced to collecting Mount Washington glass or different types of of glassware, and we're not talking about figurines, we're talking about blown, crafted Oh yeah, art. handcrafted artwork, yes, that, absolutely. This is the place to be, and I hope, uh, Jay, you'll be in touch with me so we can um, report more about the mega glass convention that's coming up and give us the uh website and the dates and places one more time uh the website address is www.2011mega-glassconvention.info i-n-f-o and we're meeting there in kansas city july 7th through the 9th um, there are going to be seven different glass clubs, and uh, I think they're going to represent a pretty good cross-section of the Victorian uh, glass, both pattern glass and art glass markets. Um, we plan to have representatives from several of the glass museums available. Um, I would suggest to your listeners, too, if they have, you know, they must go to Corning, uh, New York, to the Corning Glass Museum. Okay. Or Actually, Corning Museum of Glass is the appropriate terminology. It is um, a you plan to put on your walking shoes and spend a good day or two. Um, it is an education in glass like none other. Um, I, I just had one other thing I have to ask you because you, the glass is blown. Have you ever blown glass before? No, I have not, but I have witnessed it many times. It looks hard. Um, it's very difficult to do. I I uh, bow in great praise to people who are able to do that and do it beautifully. And uh, there are some amazing artisans still in this country today that are doing tremendous work. 
Um, nothing that quite rivals the work with the thinness and the, the control that they had in the 1800s. I do think it is an art that has really sort of passed us by, but there are artisans today that are doing remarkable work that I think, you know, in the future will obviously have quite an audience. There will, it will become highly collectible for people. There's just gorgeous glass out there, and I think at Corning, that's one of the places where you can go and see a broad cross-section from truly, truly early glass, the most, most raw forms of the Egyptian glass right up until very contemporary glass that's being blown today. Well, Jay, and speaking of art, and we appreciate so much your introducing us to this new type of glass collecting, Mount Washington. And again, if you want to get in touch with, with Jay about the show coming up in early July, 2011 mega-glassconvention, and what was the end, Jay? Dot info, I-N-F-O. Jay, thank you so much for being on The Collector Show. Harold, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on, and I hope that your uh, audience will really, really enjoy getting into some glass collecting out there. Go out and see the world. There's a lot out there to see. No doubt they will. Stay tuned for more coming up on The Collector Show. This is Harold Nickel. Well, thanks for joining us as usual here on Web Talk Radio. I appreciate hearing from all of you. Write to me if you have a story idea or a comment about the program. You can reach me at hgnickel at sbcglobal.net. That's my personal email, and I read and answer everything that I get. I want to conclude the show with an unusual collectible item. This particular doctor who is from India, Dr. Jatendra Sankpal, who is an associate professor of surgery at the GT Hospital in a town called Dobi Talayo, collects stones. And you might not think that stone collecting or rock collecting is that unusual until you realize the types of stones that the good doctor collects. He collects kidney stones (laughs) and other types of stones that he removes from inside of his patient. It's a little bit of an unusual hobby, but it turns out that there's a diagnostic use for his collection of kidney stones because a lot of times people won't want to have small stones removed. So the good doctor will take out his collection of kidney stones and show them to the patients and persuade them that the small stones will all get big and that they should really, really work to have them removed. So not just a collection for fun, but something that actually does his patients some good. You can read this story in total on dnaindia.com. Next week on The Collector's Show, we're going to switch gears from glass, and we're going to be talking about collecting fruit crate labels. The fruit collector and label collector expert who's been on with us before will be rejoining us again next week. We're not going to talk about labels in general. We're going to specifically target in on fruit crate labels. That's coming up next week on The Collector Show. In the meantime, let me hear from you, hgnickel at sbcglobal.net. It's The Collector Show. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 
If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your love.